0: morning. Yeah. Thank you. Um, um, thank you uh, for the invitation. I'm delighted to be here. Um, it's uh, great that um, uh, uh, endocrinologists and, and primary care uh, physicians, clinicians, um, and other medical specialties are actually interested in this topic. And this is one of the the battles that we've, we've kind of had in, in trying to um, get the uh, general medical community aware of some of the issues related to these antipsychotic drugs uh, because they're, they're pretty uh, significant. And it's also timely, particularly um, you know, with the UN Summit on, on noncommunicable diseases uh, this week, and we've been in New York trying to, to get them to realize that mental health touches all of this, uh, all of these noncommunicable diseases that have been... Chosen to focus on, and so, and this is one example of, of, of the uh, of the overlay. Uh, these are my disclosures: um, uh, industry support, uh, research support for one study, and consultant. Um, one of the things that it's important to recognize that if you if you look at high risk populations, um, uh, patients with um, severe mental illness are um, very high risk for a number of medical um, disorders, and in particular. Um, cardiovascular disease, and there's a lot of things that are feeding into this cardiovascular disease um, problem. But but for p- patients with chronic mental illness, um, the number one reason for death is, is cardiovascular disease. So we have to start uh, trying to understand what are those factors, and certainly we can look at um, some of the factors that uh, some are you know are included in the modifiable risk factors, but tied into the disease itself. Um, We'll talk about the lipid abnormalities, the diabetes risk, hypertension, um, but physical physical inactivity may be related to the disease, may be related to the treatment for the disease, uh, but it's a, it's a big aspect. Smoking is huge in this population. They're two to three times more likely to smoke uh, compared to the general population. And then there are some factors that we also have to pay attention to, um, and, and I'll talk about is that what happens when um, individuals are diagnosed with um, some of these medical disorders, you know, what are their outcomes? And so there's certainly um, some difficulties in accessing and utilizing uh, general medical care through the primary care system. Um, adherence to therapy is critical um, to, you know, for outcomes and, and uh, patients with mental illness are much less likely to be adherent to, to the therapy that's being prescribed. And then then economics, because we, we have a system um, that when, when one becomes disabled, we put them in a state of poverty and keep them there. Um, so economics plays into every disease outcome um, um, after that because uh, you know we, we put patients in, in into this state. Um, now some of the reasons um, and, and, and some of the limitations as to why you know primary and secondary prevention has not worked. Um, we do know they're less likely to be screened or treated for dyslipidemia, hyperglycemia, and hypertension. And and what's I think remarkable is that um, um, we you know patients will go um, to their primary care doctor, and their lipids are elevated, and um, their blood pressure is elevated, and and they simply do not walk out with this with that prescription that somebody else in the general population would walk out with. Um, so there's something that happens. To um, the decision-making process for clinicians, when there's mental illness tied to it, so if somebody, as soon as you read on the chart, person has schizophrenia, they have depression, and so on, it actually changes the you know your decision tree, and and the clinicians are not completely aware of this, um, and we just did a study with a group um, in in Boston. Um, we, uh, we were in New York, we videotaped. We had actors, and we did some videotapes of, of patient, doctor-patient interactions uh, with, with actors. And, and we simply changed the variable, um, gave them a diagnosis of depression, gave them a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis. And the primary disorder was that they were there for was the diabetes. And then we gave them a diagnosis of schizophrenia. And the actors looked the same. The presentation was the same. You know, just, uh, just the information was slightly different, and, and then we, we tested about 300 primary care doctors, and, and lo and behold, we're just, you know, going through a ton, ton of data, but, but there's clear deviations from treatment um, um, approaches based on the diagnosis, and particularly the schizophrenia one, but even even the depression one actually changed the decisions that these doctors would make. Um, so it's it quite remarkable, and so that, that certainly does have an impact. So, you know, they, you know, they're, they're, they have heart disease, they're less likely to to, to be to, to, um, to receive angioplasty in cabbage, um, less likely to receive other drugs that would be preventive or um, um, early intervention, um, and they're most likely, more likely to have premature mortality after a, a heart attack. In um, one study done, it's, it's hard to read. This, this is by, by Ben Dross. Um, this was data I think from Canada, and uh, actually no, this was the Medicare data. And they actually found that the um, the risk of death um, increased by 19%. These are individuals showing up in the emergency room, um, having a, a, a myocardial infarction, and receiving treatment. So the risk increased by 19% if there was any mental or psychiatric disorder, and then by 34% if the person has schizophrenia, um, so, and, and, they, and they determined that the um, increased mortality, mortality was explained by the quality of care, so there's something that happens. So these are high-risk patients, and, and, um, and, and in the medical community, uh, they simply um, um, do not uh, treat them as such. Now one of the things is as we started talking about the antipsychotic drugs, um, these drugs are now used all over the place. They're used for everything. Um, originally, of course, developed it for schizophrenia and psychosis and then bipolar disorder. Now they're used for depression, anxiety. Um, you know, general medical folks love to use it for use them for um, uh, sleep problems in the hospital, insomnia, like Quetype um, and seropo. Um and, and, and so the rates of use are, have gone up dramatically. Um, so, we, so there are a lot of people around the country you know, taking these uh, medications. And then we have to start thinking about what are, the, what are the, some of the uh, side effects, both short-term and long-term consequences of these medications. And we'll talk about the, 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 um, the metabolic uh, stuff um, in just a minute. Um, but this is the dilemma that we have is that some of these medicines are, are actually quite good, um, and, and, and um, you know, for some patients, uh, particularly the probably the worst drug as far as the risk for hyperlipidemia, uh, obesity, and diabetes is clozapine, but it's also the treatment-resistant drug, and it's just it's an unbelievable medication. You take a patient who has been hospitalized for years, or in and out, and 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 um, on. Hundreds of different medicines, and you put them on clozapine, and suddenly, you know, they have like this remarkable response. And so, so that drug we're gonna we'll talk about, but but it's it's a very very special drug. All the other drugs, however, seem to pretty much run together, and so there's nothing that distinguishes them um, uh, from the clinical standpoint other than the side effect profiles, um, in particular. But this is this is the dilemma that we have with our patients. Um, so it's we're going to be talking about the adiposity. These medicines cause a significant weight gain, and it's primarily um, intra-abdominal fat. Um, it uh, uh, you know, you can have you can really before we started doing interventions and, and, and paying attention to this, patients we would see patients gain a hundred pounds in a year or something just being put on one of these um, antipsychotic medications. Um, the, you know, everybody focuses on metabolic syndrome. I'm not sure where you guys are at with the metabolic syndrome thing. I have a problem with it um, in, in that, um, I mean, it's, it's a model, obviously, to um, to assess risk, um, but um, it's, I think, uh, you know, there's some problems with it. In particular, um, when we look at, um, at different populations in the U.S., um, both uh, men and women, we see that what's remarkable is is black men and black women actually have lower rates of metabolic syndrome. And people will say, ah, finally, a reverse disparity. This is wonderful. They have lower rates of metabolic syndrome. We're doing something right. But they have higher rates of cardiovascular disease and diabetes. So it says that the model actually doesn't work for this population and and what is uh, you know, and, and when, we, when you build models, you have to see. You know, you really have to pay attention to who the model is, was built upon, and, and it wasn't built upon uh, the, the African American or, or Black patients. And so, you know, data is you know suggesting that, in fact, um, the, there is a difference in, in the lipid profiles of, of Black, both adults and children in the U.S. And so. If, if, if two out of the five um, criteria for metabolic syndrome is triglycerides and HDL cholesterol, and, and blacks are, are, are more likely to have normal values or even you know, super normal values, um, even in the face of insulin resistance, um, then they're, they're less likely to get the diagnosis of metabolic syndrome. Now it may be that a triglyceride of 100 puts them at risk for cardiovascular disease and diabetes and we're we're still focusing on what you know the 150 or something like that, so we, we, we simply um, have to start you know think about that that factor. Now, when we look at um, patients with um, uh, schizophrenia, this was a study uh, done um, um, from the, the, the Katie study, which was uh, Jeff Lieberman um, uh, was the uh, PI. It was uh, about a about 1,400 uh, patients with schizophrenia were enrolled in the study, and the study was designed to determine the differences between the antipsychotic drugs as far as some um, effectiveness, uh, clinical effectiveness. And as it turns out, um, there was very little difference between even some of the older drugs and the newer antipsychotic drugs, uh, with the exception of clozapine. Um, but the big difference was that uh, from a Side effect standpoint, there was a huge difference, and, and much of it was the metabolic. But when they first looked at um, kind of baseline, did a, a, a assessment um, um, of the patients who had um, fasting blood work at baseline, and they compared it to an NHANES um, um, uh, database, basically what they found was that. The patients with schizophrenia at baseline, even though you know many, most of them had been receiving other treatments prior to enrolling in the study, so these were not med free patients, um, but they had much higher rates of metabolic syndrome and, and the components of, of, of metabolic syndrome, and the women were even worse than the men in, in that regard. So, so again, high risk population, um, you know we, we have to be concerned about that. And then, and then another study looked at um, data, uh, claims data, um, looking at um, children and adolescents comparing two, two um, groups, one that was treated with an antipsychotic drug and one that was treated with um, albuterol, um, and basically finding that um, the, both the children and adolescents treated with the antipsychotic drugs, high rates of, of, of diabetes um, in, in particular, and dyslipidemia as well. So, these drugs are being used in children and adolescents. The risks are the same, if not greater. Um, it's really critical um, in, in this population because you can imagine, you know, okay, they need this medication, the antipsychotic medication, but you know, if they, you know, in an adolescent gaining 40 or 50 pounds in a, in a few months and, and, and so on, that you know, that that changes their course in, in life you know, dramatically. To the point where we have seen um, um, young people in their in their twenties, mid twenties, and late twenties with cardiovascular disease, um, and 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 it makes sense when you look back at at, at their course. Um, there was a bunch of studies, uh, several studies in the beginning, sug- that suggested that it was it, it's not the antipsychotic drugs; it's actually the disease itself itself. So. Um, this study is looking at first episode uh, patients um, um, and drug naive patients uh, uh, with schizophrenia, and finding that a, a couple of studies found that there was some increased intraabdominal fat um, at you know prior to starting med- medication treatment, and some of that certainly you can see because if, you, if the disorder has started and and you know if you have schizophrenia and you're you have. Um, you know, your, your motivation decreases dramatically. You're, you're less likely to be active. And so some of it we can, we can actually see. But, 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 but let's be clear that the, um, the effect of the antipsychotic drug has nothing to do with the, the psychiatric diagnosis. So it's not simply patients with schizophrenia who are at risk. You can put a patient who has depression or nothing at all on these drugs, and the metabolic effect will be exactly the same. So actually, so the drug effect has nothing to do with um, the psychiatric diagnosis. Now, we know that um, the, um, with these antipsychotic drugs, there's, there's weight gain associated with it. And, and I'll try to point out to you there, that for some of the drugs, there's two pathways that get you to insulin resistance and, and diabetes. And, and one pathway is, is mediated through weight gain, like everybody else. You put on a lot of weight. A lot of bad things happen, you know, you're at risk. Um, But there's another pathway uh, with some of the drugs that can cause insulin resistance that actually has nothing to do with um, weight gain. Um, So, and and I'll I'll explain that in just a minute. Um, But we do know, again, um, there's a spectrum of effect when it comes to weight gain, um, with clozapine and olanzapine being uh, the worst. Um, Quetiapine is uh, pretty substantial. And and the higher dose quetiapine seems to have a dose relationship. If you're using 25 milligrams for sleep, it's probably okay. But when you start to use, you know, you know, two, three, four, 500 milligrams of the medicine, then it's 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 risk or increased up significantly. And then when you look at some some of the long-term effects, we see that um, uh, there is a uh, uh, you know long-term, you know, the weight gain can go on for quite a bit, and we did a study with clozapine, you know, before we started doing interventions, and clozapine looked something like this, and and people gained weight for, uh, I think the the mean was about 42 months. So, the the, the greatest weight gain was in the first year, and then after that, it slowed to about half a pound, you know, a a month or something like that, but still substantial um, as, as you go along. So, we know that that's a factor. Um, so one of the issues, of the course, is physical activity. And, and, and so it's a balance between um, uh, getting patients, you know, a medicine that may increase appetite and, and cause sedation. So it decreases activity. But it's just, you know, trying to get people to exercise. You know, this is a, a, a you know prime example. This is a, um, a endocrinology and diabetes conference. <laughs> He's a physician's. Um, so we have a problem here, right? And then this is even a better. <laughs> yeah. Let me go to the. You know, so, but, 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 so, general population has a problem, and then patients with mental illness e- even more so. So we, we have to think about that. Um, so, the with with the Katie study. Um, again. When, when you look at why patients, you know, based on the drug, there's lanzapine, risperidone, and quetiapine, we see that one of the biggest reasons that, that in the study that the drug had to be changed, the lanzapine was because of the weight gain. Um, so that's a huge, huge factor um, in, in clinical decision making. Um, you know, Very, very important. And then it, you, when you look at studies, this is with uh, children and adolescents again, um, it's it's the, the weight gain is, is pretty uh, sub- substantial, um, um, and this is in this is in kilograms. So by by you know one year into it, you know the um, uh, olanzapine patients gained you know 10 kilograms, and that's pretty substantial. Um, um, so it's a you know really really important. And again, as I said, the, the effect with children and adolescents, you know, it can be actually even greater. And then one study, uh, uh, this is uh, done by John Newcomer, I'm looking at the de- a DEXA, the total fat, uh, with just 12 weeks, um, you know, significant increase in, um, um, in total fat in the olanzapine group. And so what's, what's also remarkable, I've done studies where I've taken the patient, there's a, there's a subpopulation of patients that actually don't gain much weight, even with the worst drugs. Um, and these folks are skinny and and I've studied them and and what's remarkable is that you know their their weights look great, you know, they're skinny arms, skinny legs, but they still have the little pouch. They still have the little gut. So even in the absence of significant weight gain, they still have laid down fat in their abdomen and and it it, it seems to correlate uh, with the the insulin resistance. Um, From the weight side, there's been a lot of things that have been tried in order to try to reduce the, the weight gain associated with these these drugs, um, I'll talk a little bit about metformin, which seems to be um, a hot topic. Um, the antidepressants don't really work. Um, topiramate um, it seems to help some patients, but not if they're on like clozapine and olanzapine. But if they're on other drugs, um, there there, may, there there seems to be some some help. Um, there, um, of course, it's, it's limited by the cognitive impairment risk. Um, um, we, we did a study with, uh, with rosiglitazone, um, I think others have been doing, looking at pioglitazone, and we found that um, the rosiglitazone did, in fact, in insulin-resistant um, patients with schizophrenia, it did, it, it improved uh, some measures of insulin resistance. Um, some of the lipids also improved as well. Um, um, others, are, you know, as I said, I'm looking at um, uh, high glitazone. Um, uh Other things that nothing else has really um, stood out. But if we look at the, the the metformin thing, now I think I think the movement is um, for uh, metformin um, to be used in, in you know, pre-diabetes or you know insulin resistant uh, individuals. I think it's like the early intervention uh, sort of um, approach. Um, <coughs> there's been th- several studies that have been in, in, in uh, patients with um, schizophrenia um, that, where they've used metformin, and I have to say that the results are not that impressive. Um, I think some of the studies are, are uh, I mean, let's see, some, some of them are um, um, flawed a bit because <coughs> they use obesity as the criteria, and, and they were targeting um, weight loss as the outcome. And metformin is not a weight loss medication. Um, and so, you know, in, in one study um, done through the Katie Network, I think that, you know, that it was a 16 week study with metformin and, <clears throat> and, the, and the investigators were really excited because it was significant, it was significant results, significant weight loss. Um, and, but I think the average weight loss was like three or four pounds or something like that. That's not that significant, um, uh, you know, particularly, you know, it, it's not a benign drug itself. Um, and, and in fact, um, the, glu- the, the measures of glu- glucose metabolism that they um, um, looked at didn't improve as well, and primarily because they weren't focused on insulin resistance, they were focused on the weight. And and so they enrolled patients who may have been obese, but may not, maybe weren't insulin resistant. And it's across a whole spectrum of drugs. But at any rate, I'm not sure what the general um, approach is here uh, with the metformin. But if if they're insulin resistant, I say yes, absolutely. If if it's just to try to get people to lose weight, uh, I I don't think that (laughs) metformin is the answer. There's been a couple of studies that have suggested that if you give metformin Early on, or at the time that you start the antipsychotic, you will actually reduce, um, you reduce the weight gain um, associated, with, associated with it. Now, this study in particular looked, looked to be very impressive. Um, however, they had a lot of um, GI side effects um, um, in the study. They didn't correlate the, the GI side effects with the, with the weight loss, but um, in fact, uh, that certainly could contribute to, um, to it. Um, in particular, so so again, I'm not sure where where Columbia is at uh, as far as the, the metformin um, issue, but I'm not. I haven't been that impressed. Um, what's remarkable about the story um, this story is that um, the best intervention, you know, beyond I mean, we do nutrition and exercise and, and and that sort of stuff, and that and that stuff is critical, particularly early on, um, and but but it. Our patients will not work well through the primary care doctor and the nutritionist. You have to have a program where they're coming in every week, and and, and, and there's involvement every week. Because if you, you you know you meet with the nutritionist and say, okay, come back and see me in two months or three months, it's over, it's over. But you have to ha- engage these patients and and continue um, to engage them around the weight. But the best um, interventions have been to switch from. A, a kind of a higher risk drug to a lower risk drug, as it comes to weight and the diabetes and so on. So when you actually switch, you know, your person, you have a patient on a lanzapine and and you switch them to another drug, and, and probably your uh, piperzole and prazidone as well, one of the, the cleaner drugs, um, <clears throat> they actually lose weight. And I've seen people, patients, just by switching, lose you know 50 pounds, 75 pounds. Um, the trick, of course, is the the clinical efficacy around the the symptoms, the psychotic symptoms, and so on. Uh, whether you lose that or not, and that's 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 the trick. Um, but but I think every patient, in the context of having these types of side effects, um, deserves the you know the, the a, a trial of another medicine that that would lower that risk. And that's so you know because you know, because when you send it to primary care. primary care sends back to psychiatry, and they're back and forth, you know. Like, you're responsible? No, you're responsible. You treat that? No. I think from from a a medical standpoint, if you can get the patient off this drug, switch them to another drug, um, the outcomes are much better. The lipids improve, um, and so on. And in fact, we've had cases of of diabetic ketoacidosis. um, New onset diabetes presented diabetic ketoacidosis on drugs mm-hmm. like olanzapine and clozapine, and um, you know, they go from they come out of the hospital, they're still on the drugs, and they switch them, you know, from olanzapine um, to another drug, and then suddenly their insulin requirement drops, and then they're put on an oral agent, and then suddenly, um, after months, um, the diabetes is gone. Um, so, you know, in, in those types of situations, this is this is can be. In some patients, uh, cases of reversible diabetes. I mean, literally, you take away the offender, um, and and over time, it's some tied to some of the you know to weight loss as well, um, but but the diabetes can actually uh, resolve. Um, and same thing when you when you switch like to your um, uh from a lanzepine you get improvements in, and and the lipids as well. Um, so so that's actually pretty. Same same type of data can be seen with ziprasidone, um, in, in, in that switch as well, and then looking at uh, with olanzapine, um, you know switching to other drugs, you know, re- you know really leads to significant um, weight loss. Um, so so again, that that's that's one of the first things we think about. Um, the psychiatric team often says, well, you know, they've been stable, I don't want to risk it. And patients will say, I don't want to relapse, I don't and, and and I used to go along with that with my patients. Um, seriously, I, you know, I said, okay, that's fine. And I would like write a note, I would feel really good about it. Like offer to you know, to switch, you know, for the patient to switch medicine, the patient refuses, he doesn't want this, and and I you know, I slept well at night and so on. And then I was somewhere and I got a, got a, got a page from our, our, our nurse practitioner, said, you know, um, so-and-so died. I said, what? He said, yeah, the patient died, had a heart attack. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like 29 years old, had a heart attack. And that was one of the patients I had that discussion with. I went back to the notes. I'm like, oh, that's a nice note. <laughs> but I no longer feel good about that note. Um, so. So I, I simply started to change how I you know, presented to patients, and and so f- and from my side, I'm like, I can't continue to do it this way. Um, so you, you know, you're at risk. You know, you develop all these problems. It's tied to this medication. I don't want you to relapse. We're going to do it very slowly, very carefully. It may take three months to switch you over, but we're going to have to give it a shot, a shot, because you, you know, this is the best solution because you. Even when you go and you, you put on metformin and you put on the lipid drugs and you put on this, your outcome's not gonna be great. Um, so, so again, it, it's back to trying to, if you can, when you bump into a problem with this, trying to, to, to switch. Um, now we know that the, the insulin sensitivity, you know, it, it's tied to um, um, the you know, BMI and, and, and adiposity. Um, um, to uh, some degree in, 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 in most patients, uh, so we, we can focus on that. But we also, again, it's back to understanding these relationships and, and populations, and we did a study um, with um, um, uh, patients uh, on antipsychotic drugs um, and, and looking at the relationship between um, uh, adiposity and the waist circumference and the home IR insulin resistance uh, measure, and basically um, looking at um, um, comparing whites and African Americans and found that there was a very nice relationship with waist circumference and, and insulin um, um, resistance in the white populations, but that that relationship was different. It wasn't correlated um, in the um, uh, the African Americans. So again, it's back to Models and the predictive models, and, and so on. But there's something clearly different that happens with the African American uh, patients. And then um, John Newcomer uh, did uh, one of the first studies, uh, com- doing a comparison study of several several of the drugs. Here again, he used the HOMA uh, for insulin uh, resistance, um, and um, and here the mean BMI of the patients I think was about 27. Um, comparing patients on several groups and finding that there was some difference between um, the lanzapine and clozapine, uh, clozapine not significant, uh, but comparison with, with the typical agents. Um, so patients were matched uh, for um, adiposity and age. And So again, it's suggesting that there's some, some differences across the drugs uh, when it comes to insulin resistance. And then we did a study Um, using a a frequently sampled intravenous glucose tolerance test, um, comparing uh, clozapine, olanzapine, and risperidone. And here, what was remarkable is that um, the mean BMI was 25. So I found the best patients on these drugs. It took took a long time to find uh, individuals that met that criteria. Um, But what we found was that both clozapine and olanzapine their SI was significantly reduced compared to risperidone patients. Um, Again, with a mean BMI of 25. And the only difference that, other difference that we found was that um, um, the clozapine and lanzepine patients, despite that great BMI, they had the abdominal adiposity. So their waist circumference measures were were elevated um, in comparison to the Respiridone patients. So even when they don't gain weight, even when they look good, they're at risk. they're certainly with with clozapine and olanzapine. We did another study with quetiapine, um, in comparison, and quetiapine seroquel, um, same issue, but it's more of a dose relationship. Low dose, it seems to be okay, but but when you start to get up to 300, 400, quetiapine looks exactly like olanzapine as far as the metabolic um, consequences. So um, so when when people started re- decreasing um, the use of a they, they ran right to quetiapine because that's the next most sedating drug um, um, in in the group, and but but that also um, is metabolically challenged. Um, we also, um, in, in the same study, found this measure called glucose effectiveness. It's like seems to be um, unrelated unrelated to um, um, to insulin action. Um, this is. Uh, Come from uh, Richard Bergman's work, and but we did find that both clozapine and olanzapine um, had uh, reduced glucose effectiveness, and some of it is, seems to be tied to glucose transporters, and and many of the antipsychotic drugs have been found to block, um, you know, several uh, glucose transporters, and so it may be uh, this relationship. And what's interesting is that when when we've done intervention studies. Uh, I've done like three or four now. Um, the glucose effectiveness um, actually improves uh, better, more so than although the insulin sensitivity will improve, but 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 the the effect the glucose effectiveness actually improves um, substantially. With, this is a study with both a glitazone, uh, one with sebutramine, and and um, and then I think a, a recent one with ramalzone even um, working through the melatonin system. Um, um, the glucose effectiveness seems to improve. Um, what we do know is that there is this risk of, of diabetes um, uh, attached to these antipsychotic drugs. Um, um, the best drugs appear to be your piprazole, um risperidone, quetiapine. more intermediate with quetiapine again, at higher doses, it moves more towards olanzapine, and then olanzapine and clozapine appear to be um, at the highest risk. Um, there, are, there are other new drugs that have come out, and data um, is not, uh, there's not enough data yet to determine they look like they will be uh, more neutral, um, um, uh, but, uh, but we don't know yet for sure. Um, let me just skip, let me just skip it. So, back long time ago, when I started um, running a, a clozapine clinic, um, really a specialty clinic. I noticed that I, I inherited uh, like 10 patients and like three of them had diabetes. Um, I thought this is, this is really bizarre. So we put in this tracking system and we were weighing patients you know, monthly and, and every six, six months we'd get the glucose and the lipids and so on. And then we finally went and looked at the data and, and it was astonishing to us that what we found that over a five year period approximately um, a, a third of the patients over a five-year period developed diabetes. Um, um, with, you know, in not having diabetes prior to starting the drug, but put on the drug and they developed diabetes. Like This is unbelievable. Um, and that's when we started doing interventions, of course, uh, to try to, and I think that we, when we looked at our 10-year data, we were able to slow um, the, the rate of diabetes. Um, and some of these, some of these, like over here, were clearly patients who put on a lot of weight and so on but some of these down here were patients who didn't put on weight that much weight um, but they still developed diabetes and it's you know so so it's almost like some of these patients probably were were going to develop diabetes anyway in their 40s and 50s or, or whatever but it's almost like we shifted the curve downward so Instead of the 50s, it was happening in the 20s and 30s that they were developing diabetes. It's pretty dramatic. And we also looked at, at the tenure data and found, uh, lo and behold, that there was some difference with the Hispanic and African-Americans as far as the risks of both diabetes and, cardiovascular, and death from cardiovascular disease um, as well. So again, even we have to pay attention to population-based risk data as well when, when we're looking. At this, um, so it was all very curious as to what this was and why, why were patients developing diabetes? And there's been, you know, lots of uh, mechanistic studies um, and, and, and so on. And but particularly because the attention first was drawn because of the diabetic ketoacidosis cases. Patients were actually dying from DKA um, after being put on these these medications and so we did a very simple study using the, the hospital database uh, we, I went back and we pulled all the patients at that time that had um, you which know, I focused on schizophrenia, we could have done other things, but focused on schizophrenia, but all the patients who had um, diabetic ketoacidosis while on an antipsychotic drug and there were two groups, there was one group that was you know, patients with a known history of, of, of diabetes and Schizophrenia on you know, antipsychotic drug, and then they present in DKA. And then there was another group that was presented in DKA as new onset diabetes. Um, and so you know we, we looked at the group, we compared them, and it, it was you know the, the patients with a history of diabetes. Lo and behold, it was the typical stuff you know non-compliant with the medications, um, um, you know if, you know acute infections or some other other you know, acute medical disorder, and so on. Kind of tipped them into DKA. Um, the, um, what, we, what we found was that the new onset patients, their mean hemoglobin A1C was almost 14. So, what this meant was is that this wasn't like all of a sudden something kicked in and the drug, you know, put people into DKA. Um, these folks had diabetes for weeks or months or longer. Nobody checked it. Nobody was checking the glucose or the A one C. Um, and then something tipped them in the DKA, just like you see in a general population. Like there was infections, there was a guy who had an acute appendicitis and, and, and so on. Um, so so the trick is like if, if we do the monitoring, um, then we 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 eliminate the DKA. If we monitor, you know, glucose, A one C's in these patients, these high risk patients, then we can eliminate um, the, the the risk for the DKA, um, and looking at the you know the KD study again, um, with the changes in lipids and glucose, uh, you know again the olanzapine and then and then uh, you know highest risk of these these um, outcomes, um, uh, and this is a very similar data um, looking at the the um, was the hemoglobin A1c. I guess, the color's a little bit off, but um, um, not much change, but, but the glucose uh, goes up, the triglycerides actually go up um, um, significantly, and you can put a patient on olanzapine and then go back two weeks later and the triglycerides have shot out. So that, that effect um, is actually quite, um, uh, quite uh, pronounced. And then when you, um, when you switch patients from a higher-risk drug to a lower-risk drug, the numbers improve. So on, so again, it's back to that important that important area. Now, the this is from the ADA and the APA, um, you know, where they rank drugs and and so on. And basically, they came out with this it's a a class effect. Uh, The FDA came out with this is a class effect. So if your drug is in this class, you have to put these warnings on there, and, and so on. And these are the risks. But as it turns out. It, it is a spectrum of effect. and and there, you know two drugs that probably are the, the highest risk is the clozapine and the lanzepine, then followed by quetiapine, um, and and risperidone is somewhat intermediate. But I think quetiapine potentially uh, higher has greater effects, and then if is a prazidone. It to be um, the most neutral. Zipripresol you can get weight gain with it, particularly in adolescents, uh, but it doesn't. Come with the, the insulin resistance or the hyperlipidemia, uh, but you can get weight gain with the Zaprasidone, it's actually pretty good um, um, as well. And so there's supposed to be uh, some monitoring of, of these um, uh, profiles, and it's actually difficult for people to do. It's difficult to get clinicians to actually um, do the monitoring, but with certainly the weight, um, like we can't even get psychiatrists to, to do a waist circumference. And it's Ramon, I'm like why, like, why can't you do it? Well, I can't touch my patient. I said, you can measure the waist without even touching the patient. You just have them hold it, bring it around, look at the number. It's actually not that complicated. And, and, and the tape measure costs, what, a dollar? Um, but we can't get them to do it. Uh, but c- because we know that the, the waist circumference, it may, it may be a better predictor in some patients. Um, blood pressures and, and the lipid profiles um, yeah, absolutely critical and and we we generally do this every at least uh, once a year in our clozapine patients I, we do it every six months um, and, and we're more likely to pick up um, pick up this stuff before the primary care doctor because they, their appointments are a year apart and uh... you know and we only measure once a year that that's probably not enough time to pick up you know when, when things are changing and stuff so so we try to stay on top of it with, with the close appeal. Um, so with with the warnings, the FDA warnings and, and, and the ADA guidelines and stuff, um, we see that there hasn't been a dramatic increase in testing um, from the you know, uh, clinical standpoint. This is data from uh, Cal- from three states, California, Missouri, and Oregon. Not, not a significant increase in testing uh, for, for these problems. Now, what the good news is, is that I think uh, clinicians have um, decided that, well, I'm not going to test. Instead, I'm just going to not use the drugs that cause the problem, which makes sense. Um, um, so a so lanzapine um, um, treatment uh, or use had, had, had gone down um, um, significantly. So I think that, that part is actually positive because, again, as I said, outside of clozapine, clozapine is super special, needed. No drug, every pharmaceutical company has been trying to get a response like we get with clozapine, and this is why we have all of these drugs, and none of them come close to clozapine. Um, that drug is special, but beyond that, um, um, you know, there, there's a clear... Um, mandate to to try to minimize um, the effects. Um, So why um, clinicians are having difficulties doing this? I think, one, time limitations and competing demands, always. That's always a factor in in this. Um, Not enough time to do, you know, like I got to ask about this psychiatric stuff, I got to do this, I got to do that. Then I got to weigh patients get their blood pressure. I said, I do it all the time, and I, I'm, but I'm talking to the patient while I'm doing it. It's still, you don't have to like, okay, now I'm gonna do this, so I'm not gonna ask you any questions, I'm just gonna do your blood. pressure. So I'm talking the whole time, and I'm still, it's, it's, it's part of the, it's part of the, um, um, the appointment. Um, cost of interventions, I think, you know, getting fasting blood work, it's, it's actually really cheap. Weight measurement and weights, blood pressure, sheep. Um, so comorbid psychiatric and medical illnesses, I, I we think that, you know, what I think is that, it's that, that, that there's no, with, with the way healthcare has gone, um, and and systems are really not integrated as, as they used to be, um, so it's everybody is almost operating in, in a silo, um, sort of, and people think, um, Organizations are trying to bring that back together, and then if they're not at the same institution, you got HIPAA stuff and and, and so on, um, and, and then and then you have the um, you know the what comes with the uh, psychiatric uh, illness itself and, and the medical illnesses, um, and then the organization is a barrier to evidence-based care, um, but it's clear that we need to. Um, you know, share the burden, for instance, when it, when it comes to this stuff. And, and it should be an integrated approach when, the, when the, the problems with these medications come up and not just, you know, you send, you know, you know the, the psychiatrist feels good. Oh, look, I, I picked up this abnormality. I'm going to send them to the primary care. And a primary care doctor says, well, abnormality is caused by the drug the psychiatrist is prescribing. Send them back to psychiatry. It's like I, you know, like I can't change the drugs send them am back to primary care. But it actually needs to be a, an integrated uh, a, approach um, because I do think that um, the, the first go should be, you know, trying to get patients, switching patients off of a if a drug is contributing substantially to a problem, you know, trying to get them um, um, off off of that. Um, I think is critical. Um, so finally. You know, it's important to know that um, th- these are high-risk patients. This is this is a, this is a vulnerable, vulnerable population, high-risk patients uh, to begin with. So, um, which means that your inter- the interventions um, that um, works in the general population or that used in general popul- population may not be effective for this group. So, they 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 need to be monitored more frequently. You know, you know, primary care says, "Okay, I'll see you in a year." A lot can happen in a year, um, particularly you know, with, with being on some of these antipsychotic drugs. Um, so we so we really have to pay attention to that. Um, um, there, you know, they they again, they there are modifiable risks um, that can be effective with with the patient population. It's just the systems don't push patients in that direction. Um, you know, even re- remarkably, uh, there's a nice study that was done a few years ago. And primary care doctors are, are even less likely to tell a patient with schizophrenia to stop smoking. Now we know the biggest impact to get people to stop smoking is a primary care doctor saying, "Stop smoking. You got to do stop smoking, and then you know do this program, whatever. You got to stop." Um, but they're less likely to tell the patient with schizophrenia to stop smoking, and then you you know the rationale you know you talk to people well you know they're dealing with such a terrible illness that's all they have in their life well they're going to be dead <laughs> in, in five years so is that a good outcome um, so we know that we have to do something different and and, and, and but we can target those you know the patients doing smoking cessation programs um, with um, Know, uh, nicotine replacement, Zyban, um, um, some of the newer treatments, we can actually get them to stop smoking. Um, but again, it's not the typical smoking cessation program. You have to do more intensive um, um, approaches. Um, um, we do know, again, it's a spectrum of effects when it comes to the antipsychotic drugs. And, and that's an important to point out. It's not all of the drugs. Um, so there are some, some drugs that are much cleaner, and, and we need to, to get those. And, and for me, like I always start a new patient with Ipiprazole or um, and, and because those are the cleanest drugs. And so why not give the patient the best chance to have an, a good outcome with a drug that's not going to cause all of these you know, long-term side effects? Other people say, oh, I go right to Zyprexa because I know it works, or, or Lanzapine. I say, well, you know what? They all work for some people. None of them work for everyone. So you just have to um, give it a try and, and get comfortable and be patient because sometimes it takes two, three months before the drug actually um, um, you, know, uh, you know, works. Um, so monitoring, I think, is, is, is critical in early intervention. Um, you know, Working with, you know, Psychiatric team and the primary care team needs to work together, um, you know, to I think substantially reduce the the burden. Um, but again, these, these uh, with with clozapine being reserved for the treatment resistant patient, um, the goal there is like I can rarely get a patient off of clozapine. If they were a good responder to clozapine, I can rarely, occasionally I can, uh, but but. And most times we end up going back uh, because their, their functioning declines um, um, and, and so on. So, but, so clozapine is a drug that we try to work with, but do interventions uh, for around the weight. Um, you know, certainly, you know the lipids. You know, you we know, start with omega three. Uh, you know, those sort of things because the biggest problem with the lipids is the triglycerides. Um, but but early and aggressive intervention really can can have a, a big big uh, difference with these patients. So I'll, and now I think we have maybe five minutes for questions or comments, thoughts. baseline data, and um, patients were on a spectrum of um, medications, um, the men are, are at the same risk as the women. Um, that was just like one, one time point um, to sort of, sort of look at, but, but I, um, I think the, from the other metabolic parameters, women had greater rates and stuff, but um, when we look at the actual conversion to diabetes, men are have the same rates as women. I think that there, there's actually been no beta cell um, defect that has been found, at the, but, but certainly we know at the, at the acute DKA moment something's wrong. But when you study patients afterwards, um, it's not there. There's, the, there's no defect with the beta cells uh, per se, and, and and even in those patients who have gone on to become, you know, you know, the, the diabetes resolves completely as well. Uh, so. So we know that it's not a beta cell problem. I mean, people have found, um, but insulin resistance, you know, is that muscle? They found hepatic insulin resistance as well. Um, uh, But but beyond the acute DKA, um, beta cell function seems to be, you know, relatively reasonable. So the, um the like the older drugs, the you know like the thorazines clopromazines, and so on, they also certainly they they're, they're sedating, and they increase appetite, and so they certainly cause weight gain, and and, and there have been you know reports of higher rates of, of diabetes. It's not to the what we see with a drug like olanzapine or clozapine. With with the newer drugs, the re, the receptor problems. Um, Number one, they, they seem to be a 5-HC2C antagonists, um, so they increase appetite um, substantially. And several of the drugs do, certainly clozapine and olanzapine. Um, they also have um, H1 antagonism, and so they're sedating, and, and they decrease activity and, and, and so on. So that's also a factor as well. Um, people have also looked at other receptors and, and, and found Correlations with weight gain and stuff. Um, like, like with clozapine, hits like a dozen relevant neuroreceptors. receptors. And that's why we can't reproduce it. We can't we can't imitate it. Uh, but it hits so many dopamine and serotonin and you know histamine and, and alpha one and, and, and so on. It hits just about everything that we would want to study. Um, but but certainly the serotonin effect and the histamine effect seems to be relevant. At at least for the weight gain, with the insulin resistance, there's been nothing. um, uh, None of the receptors have been tied to, um, you know, central receptors. You know, tied to why it's you know you get um, peripheral insulin resistance or and even hepatic insulin resistance. Um, There's been studies in in dogs um, uh, which don't. exactly translate uh, necessarily to, to, to humans. That, that really have found the hepatic insulin resistance. Sorry, um, uh, but but yeah. So it's 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 it, it's it's complicated. The psychiatrist is just like helping you out. They feel like, "Oh, you sound stressed today. Maybe <laughs> you need a little." More. <laughs> you know, that's, all right. that's, a, that's a great observation. I, I mean, me personally, I'm like get in and get out. Like, yeah, okay, bye. Um But but I, I see your point because I have the same problem with psychiatrists that I talk to. <laughs> they they want to go on and on. So we'll, you know maybe we'll we'll put out some type of training for psychiatrists like the the 2 minute consultation <laughs> thank you It's the from the data that the Like like day program stuff has like been cut like dramatically. Um, They still have it, I think, for the elderly and geriatric populations. But from from the psychiatric side, certainly in Massachusetts, I think here in New York as well, um, you know, there 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 is an opportunity for great intervention, right? You got if you've got people coming every day, and we were doing this. And we were taking them in you know to the gym downstairs and, and all of all of that stuff and it's an opportunity for a great intervention but, but they cut all of those programs and so um and they've in, 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 increased the you know community outreach worker with is a young kid um who's you know taking them to burger king as a you know is a good intervention you know we you know connecting and stuff so <laughs> so it's probably the <laughs> It's problematic, you know. So but but yeah. Well, so thank you for that comment Thank you.